0: You are listening to Up To Me Radio, the best in inspirational talk radio. It's up to me.
1: This episode is sponsored by Heal Collaborative, where building healthy communities matter.
0: Greetings, welcome to another episode of Call for Caring's The Empowerment Hour. My name is Michelle Bowden, and I am your guide as we journey through caregiving together. The Empowerment Hour will bring inspiration, education, and resources to our audience of family caregivers. The tangible information provided during this episode for you to use immediately. Today, we have a unique perspective from our guests. So we often hear from the healthcare team or caregivers, but not actually the loved ones themselves. And today we will hear directly from someone receiving care and her caregiver, two sisters are on with us today. Thus, our title today is Sister to Sister. Our guest will share her journey as a lung cancer survivor. Um, So let's talk a little bit about the stats surrounding lung cancer. Per the CDC, lung cancer is the third most common cause, common cancer in the United States. African-American men have the highest incidence of lung cancer in America. Two of the leading causes of lung cancer is is cigarette smoking and secondhand smoke. Now, cigar smoking is included within this group. About 10 to 20% of lung cancers happen in people who never smoked, or, or smoke fewer than 100 cigarettes in their lifetime. So the current criteria for screening includes having a history of heavy smoking and smoke now or have quit within the past 15 years and are both are between the ages of 50 and 80 years old. So that just lost all of that up to 20% that we just talked about that may miss even a diagnosis because they're just not included in the screen. So some signs and symptoms of lung cancer include coughing that gets worse, doesn't go away, chest pain, shortness of breath, wheezing, coughing up blood. Part of the American Cancer Society, non-small cell lung cancer, one of the two types of lung cancer, which is the more common lung cancer, is diagnosed in stages. The stage of lung cancer describes how much cancer is in the body. So the earliest is stage zero. Other stages would be one through four. As a rule, the lower the number, the less cancer has spread. The higher the number, such as stage four, means the cancer has spread more. So, as I mentioned earlier, our guests today are going to share their journey together as caregiver and care recipient, two sisters. So, I want to welcome Deborah and Jennifer. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank
2: you. Welcome.
1: Thank you.
0: Absolutely. I'm so glad that you all are here to share your star- story. We've had some time together before this and spent a little time on a lung cancer panel, and I just learned so much, and I just thought it was so appropriate for you all to come and share your journey and for people to know about this journey, but just lung cancer in general because we just don't talk about as much. It hasn't gone away. It's still there. We're just not talking about it as much. And so, um, Deborah, I'm going to ask you to start by kind of
1: sharing your background, a little bit about yourself. My name is Deborah Carpenter. I am 66 years old. I am still under treatment for my lung cancer, non-small cell lung cancer, and I am a survivor. I uh, I am a retired educator. 30 years in the school systems, both uh, in my hometown school system and in the other school system where I worked. I was both uh, a teacher and I also was an administrator. I went to school at the UNC Chapel Hill. So I'm a Tar Heel, as is all, is my sister as well. So we love sports. Um, we, I, the, the journey that we've taken has been difficult, but as I said, I am a survivor. I'm still here. And I am so happy that she has been my advocate to help me survive, to help me speak, to help me understand. And that is a role that is very important, that the role of advocacy is very, very important. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. And so I'm going to go
0: to Jennifer, as you so kindly introduce your wonderful caregiver. And so Jennifer, I'm gonna let you share a little bit about yourself.
2: Oh, well, hello. My name is Jennifer Carpenter. I am Deborah's sister um, and caregiver, as she explained. Um, my uh, work is uh, as a digital communications person. I do digital type work. I've done that for over 25 years. Um, 20 of that has been at Duke University. And um, my own diagnosis and journey with multiple sclerosis um, I think helped to really position me to be a, a strong advocate. At least my I hope that I've been a strong advocate for my sister and um, helping her navigate not only this diagnosis, um, but treatment, um, various doctor's appointments, and uh, just working with her clinical team to ensure she has the best care possible. Um, we have a kind of a unique... Um, situation that we're almost 15 years apart in age. But despite that, um, we have a very close relationship. Our mother was also a uh, lung cancer um, patient. Um, She was a non-smoker, but she also had non-small cell lung cancer. And um, some of the experiences that we both shared with our mom, um, we brought into Deborah's journey as well, some lessons learned. So Um, As Deborah said, it has been a a process. It has been a process filled with some challenges, but I'm glad that we can be there for each other to help navigate that.
0: Wow, thank you for sharing that. You know, um, that's new to me that you were also dealing with your health challenges as well, right, through this journey. And so not only are you working full-time, it sounds like, but you're also um, helping your sister and helping yourself as well. And so that's often the position that we find caregivers in, um, that they're trying to do multiple things by helping their loved ones, which often can be a full-time job being a caregiver as well. And so um, it's wonderful that Deborah's able to have you on this journey with her, Um, and true sisterhood as well, right? And advocacy and all those other things that you have played. So I'm excited to hear your journey in detail. Um, So Deborah, I'm going to go back to you and tell me a little bit about your healthcare journey and kind of
1: where you are now. Well, my journey began, I guess, like a lot of of lung cancer patients. Um, There were a lot of misdiagnoses, a lot of tests. I was uh, misdiagnosed with asthma followed by um, pneumonia. And then luckily my uh, primary care physician basically said, I think you may have cancer. We need to get this checked. And of course that was scary. And even whenever my mom heard it from um, 2005, I guess when she was first diagnosed and then she died in 2007, it's scary. But when the shoe is on the other foot, your foot, it is difficult. So um, through some of the sessions that that we attended with you in terms of getting information the heal collaborative, I did not know anything about lung cancer screening at all. So even though I would have been an excellent candidate for the screening because of my age and the fact that I did smoke for almost 34 years, I should have been screened, but I wasn't. So I had to find out from um, the different health issues that I was having. But once I was able to get to have CT scans, bronchoscopies, and then finally get diagnosed with the uh, lung cancer, it was an answer. It answered my questions, but it also brought up other questions. Uh, When you hear that you have lung cancer, you want to ask, well, how long do I have to live? But you don't really want to know the answer. It's just a thought that goes through your head. With my sister, she was able to put me in contact with various doctors. I started out with Levine Cancer Center getting the original diagnosis. Uh, We actually went to Duke Cancer Clinic at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Found a great surgeon who could do the surgery, remove the tissue that was necrotic, that was not working. Um, From there, we actually looked at what type of treatment would be needed, Uh, once that was removed, chemo, a variety of other things that we did, just um, just getting information. But what was so interesting was that the surgeon kept some of the tissue from the surgery that he did, and that was later used for biomarker testing. And the biomarker testing is the big lifesaver for me because the doctors and I were able to determine what type of cancer that I had. And luckily there was a treatment available through um, uh, clinical trial drugs. I knew nothing about clinical trials then other than from the Tuskegee experiment, uh, what some students did through college. And that worried me in reference to placebos and the medication. And we had a great medical team Uh, there at Duke. And, um, you know, they looked at everything that was going on. And I was about to say, no, I'm not going to be a guinea pig. But then the clinical trial research nurse asked a question as well as the uh, PA. Well, if you don't do the clinical trial, what will you do? And I did have to pause because I'd already been through chemo treatment Um, several rounds of that, had the surgery, and I had no answer. And I could not say no. I wanted to say no, but I could not. So I said yes. Mm -hmm. And by saying yes to the clinical trial drug, that gave me a chance. That gave me hope. It gave me a chance. It gave me an opportunity to live and the opportunity to be here now to share with others. So I feel like once I had that opportunity with the clinical trial drug, that let me know what my purpose in life was to share word and help others.
0: Wow, and thank you so much for doing that. So you said a lot in that one uh, sentence there regarding biomarker testing and also clinical trials. And so let's talk a little bit more about biomarker testing because that's not something that's just generally done. Um, And I know we've had conversations and other platforms in which people sometimes didn't have that. They had to ask for it, ask for it. And so the biomarker testing is so important because as you mentioned, it can target what type of treatment is best for you. Mm -hmm. Instead of you just shooting in the dark, you can actually have where exactly you want to target target and where you want to go. But often in some circumstances, that's not always done. It may be done, but it may not always be shared. And so we want to let people know if you know someone, if you have lung cancer, so you're in the very early parts of that process, biomarker testing is very important for you. And it may not be covered. There are people working on that as well. Um, it may be expensive, but there's a, there are ways for you to get that covered. But that can really extend your life. Provide you a much more quality of life as well, and I know for you, Deborah, that made a difference. Yes. And can you, sh- your doctor, was an advocate of that for you? Is
1: that kind of how that happened? Yes, the uh, the oncologist and his team initiated that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about biomarker testing, and the term they used was genetic um, uh, uh, driver mutation. Okay. So they were all educating me on what the possibilities for treatment were. And it just turned out that that was a targeted treatment for the KRAS mutation that I had at that time. So I'm very happy that they initiated that because I would not have known. Absolutely. And then you mentioned about the clinical trial,
0: which, you know, you you talked about the horrors that we have, especially as African-Americans that sometimes... We hear stories, and so we close our ears and eyes to clinical trials. We walk the other way. But for you, that made a big difference um, in your
1: journey. For so many people and so many people of of, of African-American heritage, we still whisper the word cancer. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's fear, if it's cultural, if it's age, if it's rural or urban, but we tend to push back and not say anything. Therefore, we also don't even share with others that we have cancer to continue learning about uh, everything that's out there and available. And uh, that's one of the things that I want to do is to let people know that it's okay to talk about it. It's not going to make it worse, but information will help empower you. That's right. Information is definitely power.
0: Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Wow. So, so now, Jennifer, kind of tell us where you came into this journey. She shared about the biomarker and then the clinical trial. I'm sure there was some conversation between you all about that as well. Could kind of sh- share your journey as you entered Deborah's journey?
2: Sure. Um, Deborah. you know, initially, as Deborah touched on, she had um, a several misdiagnoses. And, you know, and this is we've learned since that this is typical. Um, when you're dealing with lung cancer, because it looks like asthma, or it looks like bronchitis, it looks like some upper respiratory issue. And, you know, at that point, um, because Deborah and I are sisters, we are close, we talk regularly. Um, when she was going through that, um, I also felt that she was misdiagnosed, but I didn't know what it was that she had. So initially my role as being a support, I would say more than a caregiver at that time, was just listening to her over the phone, um, listening to her um, talk about her doctor's appointments, talk about the concerns that she had was was she being diagnosed correctly, talking about medications. Um, I began doing research um, almost immediately because I did not have a lot of information about um, adult onset asthma. So I didn't know if, if her symptoms were consistent with COPD. Was it asthma? What was it? And so in order to have um, those conversations with her and help her process um, those takeaways from doctor's appointments, I felt it was essential to research and to learn as much as possible. So initially, it was just being a listener to her. Um, my role shifted, I think, as things escalated with her journey. um, When she ultimately became diagnosed with lung cancer, um, I felt it was important to physically be with her, um, be by her side, be there in person, just to help care for her and just to help uh, do whatever was necessary so that she could focus on staying healthy, keep her immune system strong, um, and just keep her uplifted just in, in spirit. So my um when my role shifted to being in person that also meant i was going with her to doctor's appointments and i was hearing information firsthand i was asking questions of the doctors um myself because i was with her at those appointments i started taking notes um writing down as much as possible of course researching everything that we heard um at doctor's appointments and then again you know also just listening just being there for her um the I think where things really changed with um, my role in supporting her and really becoming that caregiver was when um, she needed a second opinion and that shift from one medical facility to another, which didn't end up being Duke uh, was pivotal because I'm not sure what type of care she would have received had she stayed where she was. And uh, that role of being someone who can listen to this information and process it without having the emotional ties of going through it. Um, Of course, I was emotional and heartbroken that my sister had to go through this. But when you can separate a little bit from that, I think you can uh, be a little bit more clear headed with what the doctors are saying. And for me and Deborah as well, I wasn't happy with what the doctors were saying. So that pivot to um, let's get a second opinion and then let's work as quickly as possible to get her into um, into what ended up being Duke University was where I really felt like I became that caregiver because I, I felt like I was looking out for her. I was demanding that she receive the best care and I was doing everything I could to position her to make sure she was getting the best care that, um, that she deserved. So uh, that was my role up until, I guess, that was through the surgery, through the chemo. Um, I was there for her, um, making food for her, whether she liked it or not, helping to just take care of her home, making sure that, um, that just the, the house, things with her home were in order, making sure that um, if she was not able to do something that she uh, previously did? How can we still empower her? Um, something something is really simple is um, Deborah has these beautiful cats and she can no longer feed them because she could not bend over um, after surgery to put like food down on the, you know, and these cat bowls and put it on the floor. So little things like how can we make this easier for her? How can we help her navigate these routines, but that give her value in her life. So little things like that, I tried to help um, with her as well. And that only happened because I was literally living with her while she was recovering from, from chemo, the, uh, or coming, coming from surgery, and then also just helping her to navigate those side effects of chemo and trying to keep her strong. When, um, when she received the news that Um, cancer, despite the surgery, despite the chemo, cancer was still active and growing. Um, And then there was the participation in the clinical trial. Um, That was a really challenging time. Deborah's health was going downhill pretty quickly. And I felt like my role was just to be there to keep her uplifted. I, I kept thinking, like, if we can just get her through this so she can start this clinical trial. Um, that was, you know, that was my focus. The Deborah's decision, and we've talked about this before, that Deborah did not. Um, Deborah felt like she was uncertain about whether she wanted to participate in the clinical trial. Um, was she going to be a guinea pig? I felt that same way too. I had more knowledge of clinical trials at that time, but I still felt all those concerns and was scared for her. But in the face of the um, other options for treatment. And there weren't many at that time. I felt like that was, I felt like she made the right decision. Mm-hmm. And that again was where we partnered on that research because when she said yes to participating in a clinical trial, it meant that we received the study protocol, which is what it's called. And it is a packet of information that details um, what is part of the clinical trial, Um, What the medication is, how the clinical trial works, the duration, the side effects, um, just copious amounts of detail and notes uh, for what happens in a clinical trial. And I was able to just go through that. It took multiple times of going through that. But uh, when I was able to do a little bit of research into like what exactly is this drug that they're going to test, um, what are those side effects? There was not a lot of information out there online about it. But what I did read was very encouraging. And so I felt very, um, I felt like, I felt very, very supportive of Deborah was making the right decision. And so it was just do anything and everything that I could to help her through that. Um, As she said, the biomarker testing, so grateful that her clinical team took the lead on that. Um, As she said, they called it driver mutations. Um, I had read about targeted therapies. Um, There were all these different words that were being used. I read about targeted therapies. Um, I didn't know that word biomarker. Um, They were telling us driver mutations. Um, But the fortunate thing was that um, also as an advocate, I would just ask if there was something I didn't know, what does this mean? If there was a word that the doctors used that I had no idea what it was, it's like, can you please spell that? Um, so we got more clarity on what that genetic testing meant for her, and um, was just so grateful that her Duke team led that conversation. And uh, it was, like I said, just the waiting game to the start of the clinical trial. So once that clinical trial was underway, um again, did everything I could to just be there for Deborah. There were, some challenges, as Deborah said, along the way with that clinical trial. Um, so again, my my support shifted a bit. Where um, for a while I say we were living together. Um, when Deborah was uh, unfortunately she had a reaction to a medication that was severe, and she was hospitalized. And when she was discharged, she was discharged in my care which was very new um, for me being the younger sister, in spite of everything that she'd been through that point, um, me sort of being in charge was um, <laughs> a very intimidating <laughs> position to be in as her younger sister. But um, she also had just a mountain of, of challenges and medical appointments and testing. And so uh you know, it wasn't just an oncology appointment and this clinical trial. It was, certain, it was suddenly she needed PT, she needed OT, she had a neurologist, and so navigating all of that and um, took some time. And I think I'm glad Deborah was patient with me, but it took some time for us to figure out how best to work through that mm-hmm. and work with one another. But it it was this very Interesting time when I look back on it, because when she was going through that, she lived with me. Um, I felt that care happens best in the home. So I did everything I could to get her back to her home as quickly as possible. And then back um, on the road to those appointments at Duke, we live about three hours away from each other. So um, there was a lot of time on the road. There was a lot of time um, just navigating all the medications and the appointments, but we got through that. And I'm so grateful to have been there for her because it was, um, it, it was just so rewarding to see where she was then uh, before she started that clinical trial and where she is now. Um, it's, it's just been an amazing journey. I feel grateful that I've been able to be there and be a support for her.
0: Wow, that, that is amazing. Now, I want, now, both of you are in North Carolina. Is that correct?
2: Yes. Yes. Yeah.
0: So this is a wonderful thing about this is that you get to share your experience as a caregiver, and we get to hear the experience from Deborah as a care recipient. And so it was so many connecting pieces I heard in there. The first was She just wanted to be listened to. You know, I just listened to her initially, right? That's all, you know, when you hear all of that, sometimes you just want to vent. It's so much. I just want to get rid of it. I'm not asking for a solution. I just want to share with you what you're saying, right? And so that's the first piece. The other piece was just the um, being present. And so, so often we say, you know, I'll call or I'll stop by and say, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. You're going out your way. It's too much. And you're like, no, 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 I need to be there. But the presence of someone being there for you is so important. And Deborah, I just want you to, can you share what that did for you when your sister was actually
1: there for you in your space? Having my sister here with me made me feel more confident. I knew that I was going to be in a better shape if there were two of us doing this together. Um, The information that she provided for me, I did not have access to. She is the one that once she found out what my driver mutation was, she went online and found out about the KRAS Kickers, that, that .org program, which provided lots of information and not just having her beside me and being with me on the road at the doctor's offices at my house at her house but introducing me to that site let me know that I was not alone on my journey mm-hmm. Um, I was able to meet other people who had the KRAS mutations some of them were much older some were in worse shape than I was but knowing that you're not alone in your journey it's not that she held my hand she held my hope Mm. she held my chance and it can't get any better than that
0: oh that is so wonderful oh i am this is this is such a blessing this (laughs) is a blessing because we we don't hear this shared And we feel it. Um, And the other thing, Jennifer, as you were sharing, is that you really wanted to empower your sister to be independent. And so that's what we really want for our caregivers to do. Is because you feel you feel you you feel hopeless when you're in this situation, right? So she tried to give you as much power as possible. Um, You know, all three of us are going to be crying in a minute. So let me just get (laughs) myself together. Ah, so, um, so yeah, so, you know, when you gave her that power back, um, that was just so important for her. And then it, it, it also sounds as though you um, included her in all her decision. It's her life, it's her journey. And so she needs to have a part of that decision. And sometimes as caregivers, we want to take over that. But when people are able to do that, we just want to support them along the journey. And so that really sounds like what happens here. Happen here so I'm so glad and I know some of this is something you've heard for the first time Jennifer and some things Derba, that you've heard for the first time so I'm so glad you're sharing because you all each now know the importance of what you've done for one another and it's such a blessing to hear that that's why I say give your flowers while they're here right and Mm -hmm. so this is the opportunity to do that in that in that expression of appreciation and so you all mentioned a little bit about You had a previous family member who had lung cancer and a little kind of, can you all share a little bit about that journey and how that changed or drove what you did with, with uh, your current journey? Jennifer, you can start. Mm -hmm. Yes.
2: So our, um, unfortunately, our mother was diagnosed with lung cancer in 2005. And um, I guess the, the role of the caregiver um, was actually something that we saw our mom do. So our mom um, was the primary caregiver for her mother when she was going through health issues and also for her father. Um, There were other family members there, but there's usually one that leads. She was the only daughter. Um, So I think there was also some assumptions that she would um, play that role. But we saw her do that. And uh, when my father's mother um, became ill as she got older Um, he helped to provide resources as well so we saw this caregiver um, expectation in our family but it was also I think natural in our family so when our mom was diagnosed with lung cancer we rallied around her my sister my brother and I we took her to appointments We um, went with her along with um, our dad. We took her to her chemo appointments and we would actually sit and eat lunch with her while she went through chemo. um, We just tried to be there for her in every way. Our mother was very strong um, and a very determined person, but it was a very challenging diagnosis for her. She said she felt like she had been given a death sentence. And so um, it was very difficult trying to keep her uplifted when she felt like she had this cloud hanging over her head. But still we pressed on, we tried to be as positive as possible. As I said, we rallied around her as a family, but it was um, two years. It was barely over two years uh, of her journey. And then she passed away. That was very difficult because we were, um, we did what we could. We um, got her into surgery as soon as they saw a spot on her lung. We um, got her to, got a second opinion per the doctor's recommendation. Um, But at that time, there was no biomarker testing at all. So there was no targeted therapy. It was surgery and then chemo and um, radiation was something to consider. Our mom chose not to do that. And I think that... That was a decision that my mom made that actually helped me understand how to be a better support for Deborah. So our mother um, did not want to go through radiation because one of her brothers had uh, mouth cancer and had gone through radiation and was scarred and had trouble with his throat and swallowing. And for our mom, she said she didn't want that. She didn't want to go through that. And that was a difficult decision that she made for me to process because I was like, do everything, do everything that the doctors are offering. Um, but that's when I realized it's not my life, it's my mom's life and this is her decision. And my role is to support her and not tell her what to do. And so that was um, helpful with Deborah's journey and decisions that she had to make. I hated to say, I can't, I can't even give you my opinion on some of the decisions that Deborah had to make, but it was because they were her decisions. Um, so, our mom's journey certainly, I think, was in the back of my mind when Deborah was diagnosed with cancer. At the same time, as Deborah's journey evolved, I realized it's a very different mm-hmm. journey. And now we can see it's a very different outcome as well. Right, absolutely. Deborah, did you want
0: to add anything to that?
1: Well, just as Jennifer said, with the years difference between when my, when our mom had cancer and then my diagnosis and treatment of cancer, everything had changed. Uh, um, healthcare research and development had increased and produced so much. And our mother was very, very strong. She was in her way. She was outspoken. Sometimes she was timid, but, um, and there were times that we had to care for mom at my sister's house. Um, I do want to share this with you, and I know I'm going to tear up. But my mom actually had a um, a seizure at her at my sister's house, and my my brother and my dad were all and my sister were all in different locations at the house. But my mom was not able to breathe, and as my sister has rallied for me. I rallied for my mom and gave her CPR and was able to revive her while my sister called um, uh, the EMS to come and help us. And we were able to get her to a hospital just a few miles down the road. And, um, you know, she she wasn't um, able to talk at that time because the cancer had just taken over and I don't know if she was having a stroke or what, but we still talked with her. Daddy talked with her mm-hmm. and it was so interesting because the doctors had unplugged her and thought, okay, she's going to pass any time now. But it's, it's almost as if she knew we were around her
0: yeah. and
1: my father said, "No, know, Pansy, that was her name. It's okay for you to go now. Yeah. And because of the family was there. That's all it took. Yes. And I'm happy to have my family with me now.
0: Oh, what a blessing. Thank you for sharing this. This is so heartfelt. And I know it's emotional for you. And I'm just so blessed that you're sharing your story with everyone. And so I think at this time, we're going to go ahead and take a break and come back and talk a little bit more about um, other support that you received during this journey, even outside of your sister. Okay. So we'll be right back. All
1: right. The health of our community matters. Heal Collaborative advocates for African American facing challenges navigating through their local health system. We partner with churches to create health education programs that connect individuals and families with local resources and support. Together, a better quality of life is within reach. Learn more by visiting us at healcollaborative.org.
0: Welcome back. We are talking with two sisters about their journey of caregiving. And so prior to us taking a break, we all needed a break, take a stretch, get some tissue. Um, It's been such a um, awesome, awesome testimony between these two sisters. And so I certainly know you're getting lots of information and also just being empowered by the connection of a caregiver and someone receiving care, but also just family. So, Deborah, um, we talked a about the support you've been re- receiving from your sister, which has been awesome, but you also received support from other groups, and you mentioned a little bit about KRAS kick- kickers. So, you, yes. can you hear a little bit about KRAS
1: kickers and how they um, impacted your journey? Well, it's called the KRAS kickers. KRAS. because KRAS is the name of the genetic mutation. So, I, I was found with KRAS. G12C. And I think it's probably the most prominent uh, genetic marker or biomarker for a lot of lung cancers. But my sister found that website once she knew what my uh, genetic mutation was. And then I got involved with the people. Their sessions provided information from doctors. But what was also interesting was that you heard from other people about their journey And how they were were working with with that. And it just made a difference hearing from other people. And because my sister did the research and let me know that that site was there, I found another site uh, called a Patient Empowerment Network. Mm. Uh, And it was uh, a powerfulpatients.org that provided doctors. They still provide information about uh, clinical trials and they they use basic terminology that everyone can understand. So you don't have to go to medis- medical school to understand <laughs> what's been, whats they're talking about. But I also was able to get in contact with, uh, through Levine Cancer Center, um, some activities that would help me with my breathing. So uh-huh. I started working with this um, lady, uh, Marie, who was part of the, flowing river, qigong and yoga. So she did not just do um, activities for people who had cancer. Some of us had cancer, some of us did not, but it was to improve your strength, your stamina, your uh, um, ability to walk. And I needed that for my neuropathy, but breathing. So it was yoga where you would improve your breathing. Uh, tai Chi that would improve your breathing, as well as qigong Gong that improved breathing. And that helped me to increase my lung capacity. Um, I'm so much stronger. I'm not stumbling over uh, things like I had been doing before. Mm-hmm. And once I had been through OT and PT uh, and didn't need the oxygen anymore, I was able to get rid of the wheelchair, get rid of my rollator and literally stand on my own two feet wow so those connections made a a huge difference and then whenever she mentioned to me about the um clinicaltrial.gov I didn't know anything about that and that's just a huge database yes. but we use that to speak even more with our KRAS kickers groups as well so The information that Jennifer retrieved for me actually gave me more desire to learn more and to continue to learn more about the cancer that I'm dealing with, as well as the cancer that other people that are dealing with. And uh, Michelle, I'll share with you what I've been doing now. There are some ladies in the um, yoga classes with me who are having some difficult times and we have talked about uh, cancer, so I will ca- I've will. i called them. Mm-hmm. We actually spoke for 20 minutes about the, our cancer, but the remaining two hours, we talked about what we had in common as human beings on oh, this earth. Oh, wow. I didn't, neither of us realized how much time had gone by, but we need each other for support. But yes. uh, cancer survivors need each other for support as well not just some, uh, um, our caregivers or our advocate, my family members, just listening and talking with other people. It improves your confidence. It improves your outlook. It it makes things bearable. I'll put it that way, bearable, tolerable. And I feel good about what I'm doing now. I feel very good.
0: That's wonderful. And that's, that's great to share that is that because Um, We so often think about um, from the caregiver perspective that we want our time for ourselves to get away and do some things along, but I also remind people sometimes the people you're caring for want you to go away and they wanna be alone, right? They want their own time, they want their own thing. And that's a great point is that you are able to have this conversation with other survivors. You talk a little about the cancer and mostly just about who you are and what you do, just normalcy, so to speak, right? You just want yes. some normalcy when you're going through this journey. And I just think um, that that's an absolute great point. And um, now, Jennifer, I know for you, you've been the researcher, the advocate, sounds like the cook, the, the pet keeper and all these other roles. Um, you've played many a roles. And so uh, what role or was there a role that you had that was surprising to you? And tell me how you kind of overcame the challenges of that role.
2: Uh, I. I think one of the challenges, one of the biggest challenges was um, my own care and support. Um, I, I, As I said, I was trying to do everything that I could for Deborah, um, and suddenly realized, like I, as you said earlier, you're not just playing caregiver, you also have to play like your role with work. And um, I realized I was not able to focus with work. And um, I am grateful that um, I had self-awareness. I had a network of friends that would text me um, to see how I was doing, see how Deborah was doing, and that reminded me that that I can't be a support for Deborah unless I'm whole myself. And at a certain point, I was I was absolutely not whole. Um, and through those friends, through the encouragement, I spoke with my. Um, HR rep through work and said, I think I need to go out on FMLA, um, the Family Medical Leave Act. I need to use that for my sister um, so that I can care for her. I, I realized there are a lot of challenges with FMLA when it's not a parent or a child. Um, it's very difficult to use FMLA for a sibling unless you have like guardianship over, over your sibling, which I did not have. And I would joke I was like, Debra is not in bad of a shape where she is not cognitively mentally with us. And she will never give up like that power. And I wouldn't want her to, Um, but it was through my HR representative who said, um, well, we need to figure out how to get this FMLA for you before you're not able to focus with work before you're losing sleep before you're having struggles. And I said, I'm already at that point. And she said, oh my gosh, she didn't realize that. And so it turned out that I could take FMLA for me. And I did not know that. Um, so it was my resources through work and the encouragement of, encouragement of my network that said, you, you need to take some time away. So being able to have that time to separate a little bit from work, um, I didn't stop working completely, but I reduced my workload, but I was able to keep my job. Um, while caring for Deborah was significant for me to be able to be there and be that support for Deborah. Um, So that was that was a challenge that um, I'm just grateful that other people helped me overcome and relying on other people um, helped me to overcome that. The um, I will say the other the other piece that was frustrating with Deborah's journey was the financials. And um, Deborah having a bill, bills that we didn't anticipate, um, challenges financially that we didn't know, you know, no one said, and, and I wouldn't want someone to say, oh, well, we'll do the driver mutation testing after you after we see your insurance and run that and blah, blah, blah. I'm glad that that didn't happen, but we had to deal with the aftermath of that. And uh, again, this is where, you know, I wanted Deborah to be as healthy as possible, keep that immune system strong. And I didn't want her to worry about things like that. So um, I stepped in where I could to figure out. And, and I even told her in a very, very um, matter of fact way, like, do not pay a dime. Um, we will try to, let me at least try to figure this out first before we start coming up with a payment plan. Right. and um and i had to tell her that many times <laughs> yes um but um but it was making phone calls i'm um, just having carving out some time during the day making phone calls prepared to okay this is going to be a couple of hours of calling people here calling other people with insurance waiting to hear back from the hospital um but we um we were able to get that reconciled and i and i'm grateful because i didn't again i just didn't want any extra stress on Deborah and for her to get those statements that initially said this is not a bill and then suddenly it was a bill um that was something that I just didn't she I didn't feel like she needed that right. so I was glad that we were able to get that reconciled relatively quickly once we um came up with the game plan of how we would try to tackle that
0: yes Well, you know um I love you all because you're both, both so real you just talked about how you were not okay when you were doing all these things, right? And so you had to stop and take care of yourself. And as caregivers, we don't want to admit that. We don't want to say it because we think that we're not giving that person enough or they'll be offended. But you really do have to take care of yourself and to have friends who are not only asking about Deborah but asking about you. And then you have to be accountable and say, I'm not doing well, or I am doing well. Um, the use of FMLA. It looks like you used intermittent FMLA as well. Yes. So you can work some and not work, and people don't know that's an option for them as well. Um, the theme for our our this season is is all about call to action, and as you mentioned about FMLA, and you know the the relationship. It had to be a child or a parent. Um, I think there's really opportunity for us to begin to focus on our legislators to say, hey, FMLA is not a standard relationship anymore, right? So my aunt could have raised me or my uncle could have raised me and they're like a mother or father, but they're not my mother or father. Or I'm a caregiver for my best friend I've known for 45 years, right? And so we really need to, again, this is a call to action for us to be able to to push those things about FMLA. Our world has changed, and so do some of the guidelines and rules as well. But I'm going to get off of my soapbox and get back to you all. uh,
2: Great points. (laughs)
0: So now that we talked a little bit, um, I'm going to ask for you all to each give us one action that you recommend the family caregiver immediately take after listening to the podcast. And Jennifer, I'm going to start with you.
2: Take a break. (laughs) Take a break and step away. Um, I, I, I am so grateful that I had a network of friends, um, a very large network of friends praying for Deborah, praying for me, checking in on her, checking in on me um but they um they were absolutely telling me that like I needed to step away. I needed to make sure even if it 's just an hour, go for a walk, go get some lunch, so that I can be strong for deborah and They helped me to realize I needed to do that um, because otherwise it was, you know, if I needed to be away from Deborah, I was like, where's your cell phone? Make sure you have my number. If I'm going down, you know, if I needed to go to the grocery store, I may call you, have your phone close by, make sure someone is, you know, a neighbor is nearby. I didn't want to leave her because I didn't want something to happen to her, but um, I had to step away, um, as I said, small little breaks here and there to, um, in order to have the mindset that was fresh and the energy to be able to come back and be her um, caregiver and support. So I I would say if if you're a caregiver, um, you don't get enough breaks, you don't give yourself enough um, support to just step away, even if it's just a few minutes to just take a breath. So if you're a caregiver, I would say absolutely do that. If you are new to caregiving, um, I would say start a notebook, whether it's print or electronic, um, your phone, a notepad, whatever it takes, um, get a notebook going because you never know the direction the journey is going to take and how you may need to look back really quickly at um, what happened three months ago or what happened two months ago. um, It's just essential because there's also a a potential for the journey to really escalate the doctor appointments, the terminology that you're not familiar with. It's just so much easier to have a resource that's yours in your hands um, at all times. And um, that was, I didn't know it when I was going through it. But that notebook um, for me, which started out as a print notebook and then moved to digital, um, I did not realize how much that would become a resource um, for me in my conversations with Deborah, and even at our doctor's appointments when they're trying to think about what was done a few months ago. Um, that notebook is, is just incredibly helpful.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. And I'm going to go to you, Deborah. So what what recommendation that you would have for folks?
1: Ask questions. Mm -hmm. I was very fortunate to have a sister who took copious notes. I did not always remember things, but she would remind me having the, the note taker just kept everything going but that actually gave me the opportunity to ask more questions more questions of my doctor, more questions of myself um, it, it, the confidence that it that it gives you but when you're able to ask questions, you feel empowered with your your journey with cancer um it, it gives you strength whenever you have you can ask questions. You may not always understand the answers, but hopefully your caregiver, your advocate can actually help respond for you. But the information, all the notes that she took, it was just so they were copious notes, but it was so extensive Mm -hmm. that a lot of times all I would have to do would be to read her notes or she would share them with me. And that gave me better insight into what I needed to do. And it makes a difference because it makes you stronger. Asking questions is, being, is, is a good idea. There are no dumb or no stupid questions. Um, not asking them would probably be to your detriment, but just asking questions of everyone around you. And in fact, um, when Jennifer was asking questions of the oncologist about a variety of things, we found a place for another opinion for my treatment, which Mm -hmm. was in Winston-Salem at Wake Forest Baptist Hospital. And they weren't doing the clinical trial. They were doing the the um, full-blown dose of the medication. And that took us another step further. So she did the research, she asked the questions, and then that gave me more questions to ask. But I feel like I am in control of things whenever I am able to ask questions and get answers and you feel so much better about yourself.
0: That's right and also the the healthcare teams knows that you're involved in your care right I'm yes. an advocate for myself or my loved one and so I am a part of this team and I'm going to ask and give input into your own care which you really should yes. and so Deborah, is there um, a website, social media, something you recommend people may follow
1: that kind of helps with the journey? The um, The patient empowerment network that I mentioned, uh, okay. powerfulpatients.org, is very good because it gives you lots of information, gives you um, connections with other people. Sometimes the information is over your head, but you've got access to explanations, either from your advocate or from the the people who are there on those websites. But just having a community of survivors also helps. Making friends with people who are going through the same thing you're going through, it builds the community and it builds your strength and it builds your confidence in knowing that this cancer will not beat you.
0: That's right. Absolutely. That's a great way to end that. Yes. And Jennifer, do you have a site or social media, or anything that you recommend?
2: There are two. Um, For lung cancer, I found um, the American Lung Association's website. It's lung.org. I found that to be a really good resource in explaining um, uh, staging, diagnosing, treatment, um, targeted therapies, um, outcomes. It, it really was helpful when, um, Deborah in particular, when she was going through surgery and was initially diagnosed and just trying to understand what was happening physically to her body. And then what the expectations were for, um, post-surgery, it was a really helpful site. Um to um and, and it was a site that I felt that I trusted because there's a lot of information out there that can take you down a lot of different roads. Um, so I tried to look for a.org um organization or a credible organization. Um, and I found that American Lung Association had really great information. Um after that, there is a website called This Is Living with Cancer, and it is literally this is And it includes information about a lot of different types of cancer but it's information as well about um, diagnosis and treatment. But it also talks about um, for the various cancers, like what happens post-surgery? What do you do when you have complications? Um, what do you do as a caregiver? How do you feel? Um, how to support yourself, how to support your loved one? And then um, the, the, the piece that really drove me to that site was it included questions for people who've been diagnosed with cancer and it had examples of questions not to ask, mm. so you knew. Um, so you know, it gave you some understanding of how to respond to people when they, when you could see that they wanted to ask questions. I think a very common question when you have lung cancer is, "Did you smoke?" And so it helped to be able to better prepare how to answer questions about was journey um, without, without sort of that anger, without that frustration. Um, and then helping, it helped me to actually help people know a better question to ask instead of how are you doing? How are you feeling? So um, this is livingwithcancer.com. was a really great resource.
0: Okay. Great. Thank you all so much. This has been such an enlightening, impactful, emotional journey that you all share. And I'm sure people have learned so much from it and i thank you the to the two sisters for being here and i appreciate you all sharing your journey thank you for the opportunity
2: thank and you ab- so much
0: absolutely absolutely and so as as we talk today we um kind of heard a a little bit of call to action. And as I said, as we move throughout this year, um, this is about a call to action, not only focusing on yourself as a caregiver, but just the community that we live in. And so, some of the things that I heard, I'm going to remind you of if you are a social user of tobacco, cigars, e cigarettes, that you fall into that um, area to be screened or you can ask to be screened for lung cancer. Um, If you're diagnosed with lung cancers, you do wanna get the biomarker testing. Um, Knowing your biomarkers and kind of open yourself up to things like clinical trials could improve your outcome in your journey. Um, With lung cancer. And then also, we also want to ask our local and state representatives to support legislation that allows for these screening parameters to change, support biomarker testing, and even look at what we discussed earlier about FMLA and that kind of restricted area that it has for the relationships of the person you're caring for. So again, I want to thank my guests for such wonderful information that they provided. Um, We are the Empowerment Hour, and it's presented by Call for Caring. Our organization supports caregivers through resources like today's podcast, expos, Courses and Grants, Um, This year, we will have our first Family Caregiver Academy course in October October of 2022. And so please click the link that's included in the episode notes here to learn more and to register. Um, Today's episode can be heard on uptomeradio.com or your favorite podcasts. We also have added episodes from our, from our first season to the Call for Caring YouTube channel, and eventually this will be added to the YouTube channel as well. So we hope that today's episode of the Empowerment Hour has met our goal to educate, elevate, and empower caregivers during your caregiver journey. Thank you.